Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day, and I am excited about this week's episode featuring a conversation I recently had with Steve Cuss. Steve is the lead pastor of Discovery Christian Church just outside of Denver, Colorado. Steve has a heart for ministry leaders and understands the pressures they experience. He's spent many years helping leaders find freedom from some of the unhealthy patterns they and their teams are living in, particularly patterns related to anxiety and stress. Steve is the author of what I consider a must-read book entitled Managing Leadership Anxiety, and he hosts a podcast of the same name. Now, in this week's episode, Steve and I dive into how leadership anxiety impacts our ministry and can actually contribute to a sense of burnout. Steve helps us identify anxiety within ourselves and provides practical ways to address that anxiety to help us lead in more mature and vibrant ways. He also walks us through an example of how you can address relational anxiety with your team or with your family. These are powerful insights that can have a profound effect on your leadership. So please, won't you join me in my conversation with Steve Cuss? Steve, welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. Such a joy to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I, I love uh, talking to church leaders. Yes, and, and you have a lot to talk about being a, a church leader, a lead pastor yourself. Uh, Steve, early in your ministry career, uh, you learned a valuable lesson related to managing anxiety in the midst of, of kind of traumatic situations. Can you take us back to your first ministry role and what you learned? Oh, for sure. Yeah, my first ministry role out of college was as a trauma chaplain. Uh, some of our listeners may be familiar with clinical pastoral education, and I did full-time four units of that in a year. I was 24, and I'd never seen a dead body. I'd never had any real experience with grief. And it definitely, for that year, that was definitely the year that showed me um, how much anxiety I carry and and how much anxiety, um, actually, I think all church leaders carry. And I think it can be really deceptive because I think when we think of anxiety, we just think of, you know, worry or fear. Um, but what, what I learned as a chaplain is, is my impulse to do something or my impulse to say something, which before that I thought was helpful for people, was actually um, an anxious response. It, it was how I showed up when I didn't know what to do, for example. And uh, yeah, that year of chaplaincy, all kinds of stuff was inside me that I didn't even know was in there. Um, fears and triggers and childhood wounds and all of that. And and mostly that would come out when I was dealing with someone in grief or when I was with someone who was actively dying. So, you know, my very first encounter uh, was absolutely crazy. It, it was um, about a dozen people who were screaming because their mum had died unexpectedly. Mm. But even after a, a few weeks, you know, when, when I'd start to get the hang of it, uh, sometimes I'd be really surprised by the way anxiety would show up. Like every time uh, I would get the beeper to get down to the emergency room because the ambulance was about to show up. And I would catch myself just praying a very simple and, and a very human prayer. Uh, Please, God, don't let it be my wife, mm. uh, which there's nothing wrong with that prayer. But you, you can't be present to somebody in their pain if you're busy worrying, you know, that it's someone you love or 
anything like that. Or sometimes I'd find that if there were multiple deaths in a day and, and I was just exhausted and fed up and then the beeper would go off and someone else had died, that I'd actually be angry at the person for dying because they had interrupted you know, my break in the staff room watching Seinfeld reruns. So, yeah, that whole year was just um, a powerful, like, plunge into figuring out what is happening under the surface of my life and how it shows up under pressure. And that, that's why I think it's not just trauma chaplaincy. I think church leadership puts us under tremendous pressure, every one of us. And so we all have these little kind of, I call it the bubbling or the boiling cauldron under the surface that's always just bubbling, ready to boil over and spill up. Yeah, that's amazing. It's, it's amazing that you got launched into that as your starting place um, for, for ministry. And I can imagine that over the years, uh, God has taken you back to that, that year in the um, ER, you know, trauma and has helped you, you know, kind of build a foundation for uh, ministry as you move forward because you had the opportunity to learn some things in, in kind of a, um, a hot zone that many of us who go into pastoral ministry, you know, don't have a benefit. Um, did you see that as as something that, I mean, did you recognize that early on as a young man, that uh, that unique experience and how that played into your leadership? Yeah, that's a great question. So I was a newlywed at the time. I'd been married a week when I started. And I, I would say, and my wife would say the same, that the first three months of this program, I was fighting it tooth and nail. I thought it was crazy. I thought the people I was working with uh, were crazy because because every morning for an hour and a half, we would debrief almost like in a group therapy situation. The whole program is designed to put you into traumatic situations and then process what's going on under the surface in you. And I just had never been trained in that. I, I went to a conservative Bible college and uh, my own personal background is in sales, corporate sales. And, you know, um, there's, there's nothing in sales that can really be useful in the face of grief. So the first three months, I think I was really fighting it. And then something clicked in me, uh, where I just suddenly realized that it was an incredible gift. Like where, wherever am I going to get this gift of people telling me the truth, people showing me my blind side, my shadow side, you know, I, I was 24, I was young. I didn't even know what a shadow side was. I didn't even know that I was arrogant or that I was covering my insecurity with, with certainty, all of that kind of stuff. So the next nine months of it, I, I, I totally embraced as a gift. And um, I think the most surprising thing to me is because after chaplaincy, I went to seminary and then uh, as a crisis interventionist in Vegas and then a lead pastor I think what caught me off guard is how much of what I learned as a chaplain translated into local church ministry, for sure. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Steve, uh, one of the things that uh, there's much discussion around right now, the, the topic of burnout for pastors and ministry leaders, and in your book, Managing Leadership Anxiety, uh, you share that um, your perspective is that burnout is not so much a workload issue— Rather, burnout relates directly to what you refer to as uh, leadership anxiety. Now, Steve, we're, we're generally familiar with the idea of anxiety, but can you talk to us a little bit about what do you mean by leadership anxiety? Yeah, yeah, th I, that's a great question because anxiety is a broad word and there's a lot of uh, definitions of it, you know, PTSD or generalized anxiety disorder. Uh, my specialty is what's known in family systems theory as chronic anxiety. 
that's what I'm calling in the book leadership anxiety. And chronic anxiety happens uh, anytime we don't get what we believe we need in any given moment. So, for example, if I'm a trauma chaplain and I walk into a room and people are grieving, uh, maybe I believe the lie that I'm supposed to do something. And because I don't know what to do, um, I'm now chronically anxious. And then what happens next gets really interesting. Maybe I try to take over the room or maybe I try to quote a scripture to them or do something to shrink the situation down to manage my own anxiety. So I'm no longer actually present to the people in pain, I'm now present to the anxiety I'm carrying. So for our listeners, the way to start identifying your leadership anxiety is to try to figure out in any given situation, like if somebody sends you a critical email or if you're about to go into a board meeting and you know that you're anxious about it, leadership anxiety is is, is the deficit that you're carrying when you're not getting what you think you need. So as a preacher, for example, I used to believe the lie that every sermon I preached had to be gold standard, every single one. And of course, I was a young preacher and learning how to preach. And, and I would say a pretty disturbing percentage of my sermons were, were lame. You know, that's <laughs> bad. Uh, right. Cause every, every yeah. preacher I think needs a hundred, 150 sermons to kind of find your voice. But right. So that's what's true. But what I believed was true was every sermon had to be a, like a home run, like like people coming up afterwards and saying, what is this new teaching? You know, And so when I didn't get that, um, I would have a physiological reaction. Uh, I'd get angry or hurt or depressed. or so, so yeah, my thesis is that what causes church pastors to burn out has way more to do with chronic anxiety or leadership anxiety than it ever does with how much is on your plate. It's usually because you're a people pleaser and there's just been too much criticism and it's really putting pressure on your people pleasing. Or, you know, for some leaders, um, you must have the last word, you know, mm-hmm. like you're in a meeting with someone and, and they don't understand you. And so your solution is just to, to talk more. That's an anxious response. Uh, I don't know if that helps. Yeah, no, no, that's that's very helpful. Um, you kind of break down and help us think through this this chronic anxiety, this leadership anxiety, in a couple different ways. You you talk about kind of this internal uh, presence of this anxiety and then external. So, uh, Steve, I'm just curious, why is it important, first of all, for us to differentiate between the these kind of two sources of, of anxiety? Yeah. Because um, I, I believe theologically, anxiety is actually um, a spiritual dark force. I, I believe that um, when we're chronically anxious, we don't sense that God is with us. We believe the lie that it's all on my shoulders. And, and that's because I, I think chronic anxiety, it, it, like it occupies the same space in our soul where we're aware of God's presence. So... God can be present to us when we're anxious, of, of course, but it's very difficult for us to be present to God when we're anxious. We mm-hmm. tend to, we tend to uh, operate out of what I think Thomas Merton calls our false self. So the reason it's important is because anxiety is this like giant tangled web. But if you can learn the sources of anxiety and then you can diagnose what's going on, you will immediately become less anxious. You'll, you'll go from just saying, 
oh man, I'm so worked up or, or I'm waking up at night worrying. Like that's, that's kind of that overwhelming feeling. Mm -hmm. If you can move from that to say, oh, I think what's going on is I think I'm putting myself in a double bind or that would be one source or, um, oh, as a preacher, my faith is shifting or I'm experiencing doubt, but I have to get up and preach faith. How do I preach from the pulpit? How, how do I have doubt and live with integrity? You know, that's a, a source of anxiety. And then relationally, you know, one of the more famous ones in family systems series, triangulation, if somebody is, is trying to get three or more people into a relationship where only two people should be, like gossip, for example, is always triangulation you're going to be anxious. And so if you know that you can actually start to deescalate your anxiety. And I believe then eventually it's, it's obviously a longer process than we can probably cover in a podcast, but, but then you can actually, as a leader, viscerally encounter the grace of God in the midst of your anxiety. And that's where I think it gets really powerful. Oh, that, that, that's, you know, I, I think as, as we kind of process through that, it just says, I'm listening to you right now, Steve, and to hear you talk about anxiety and how it um, how it competes with with space spiritually in our lives, uh, it, it really puts words to I think what a lot of us sense and feel, <laughs> but but have never really stopped yeah. to put words to it. You know what I mean? So I, I, yeah. I very much appreciate that. It seems that um, especially as as pastors and ministry leaders, it seems that much of our anxiety is often somehow related to success, right? So like. We're anxious because we don't see something coming together as we had hoped, or, or maybe it's in a relationship that you know we're we're working with uh, with people within the church, or success as just you know being a, a successful and effective uh, pastor. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about how anxiety relates to kind of this idea of success or performance? For sure, I think I think you've totally hit the nail on the head, and. And I think uh, what I'm interested in doing is trying to really get to the source of it. So when I hear success, I, I think the step underneath that or the foundational issue for pastors is that we fundamentally relate to God more as God's employee than God's child. Mm. And I think that is the problem. And then then the success pressure becomes the um, symptom of that problem. So I think uh, whether success is because of um, – internal expectations we have on ourselves, or external pressures we might feel from other leaders. I think the fundamental core issue is we're, we're clocking in for the boss more than we're experiencing being a kid in the kingdom. So I, I think then that success pressure comes out of the need to work well for the boss, you know? Right. Um, just yesterday I was, I was, I was working with a group of pastors and one of them came up afterwards and he's about to move his church into a building after months and years. And he has all this anxiety about it. And it is like what you just said, Jason, it is a success driven concern. Uh, and what I was trying to do for him, it, it was hard, but, um, his anxiety was a big tangle of like seven or eight different things all wrapped up in moving into the building. And I think the way to detangle anxiety is to get a friend you trust, or sometimes you have to get a therapist, you know, a professional, mm -hmm. and to just to, to say to that friend, hey, I'm really anxious. Uh, I'm going to tell you what's going on, and I'm going to ask you to like prayerfully listen to the assumptions that I'm making that aren't true. Now, I think a lot of what makes a leader anxious is we just simply believe things 
that simply aren't true. Like, for example, um, if our church doesn't grow, it means I'm not a good pastor, things like that, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and you often need a, a, an external person to help you notice the lies that you believe. And I think that's why I think anxiety is a spiritual dark force. I think fundamentally it tells us a lie that is always bad news. It's always a path to death, you mm-hmm. know, in, in the words of Paul in Romans 6. And I think the grace of God is always the gift of life. And and so I think the I think a lot of pastors burn out because we are not drinking from the streams of grace. You know, we're we're really good at telling others about it, but we're not as good at receiving it ourselves. And um, I think that's a lot of why we burn out. Yeah, no, no, that's good. Steve, as as pastors, um, if if as we're listening to this and we're maybe you know reflecting and and seeing some of this in our own lives as we're living our lives before God, uh, what are some tools, what are some practices that we can use to better manage this this leadership anxiety? I think there's a couple of things. Like, obviously, the book goes into, like, tremendous depth on, on what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the first step, if somebody's just dipping their toe in this, and, and particularly for listeners who are saying, well, I'm, I'm not really very anxious, you know, like I don't worry much or I'm not afraid much. I, I would just say to them, uh, why don't you ask somebody in your life who loves you what they would say? Like the step one could be to say to a loved one, how do you know when I'm anxious? And then believe them, whatever they tell you, you know, I think that'd be a step. But but for your own self, just grab another person, someone you trust, someone who's safe and try to say to each other, how you know in your body, like physiologically, when you're anxious. That's usually where I train people to start. If, Because if it's true that we often don't know we're anxious until we're really, really anxious, if you can notice it earlier before it really gets a hold of you, then you can intervene earlier and it won't drag you so far down the road. So before I was really doing this work, you know, I'm a, I'm a chronic people pleaser. So if somebody would maybe criticize me or if somebody is at odds with me, I'd be anxious for days or sometimes weeks. You know, I'd just be spinning about it. Um, and and but now that I've learned how to intervene earlier, I'm usually more anxious for like twelve hours or a day. Um, so I think it's important to stay. You still be anxious. It mm. just won't. It won't have the grip on you that it had before. It won't do the damage that it's doing now. So step one would be to really name physiologically. And so what you do is you'd say to your friend, okay, my anxiety starts in my mind. When my mind is spinning, you know, for example, um, I believe the lie that I can worry my way to peace. That's how I know I'm anxious, you know, or someone, someone else might say, oh man, my anxiety starts in my heart rate. It's like I've, I've had 10 cups of caffeine. That'd be step one. And then step two would be, and this this is harder work, but to try to name what in this moment do I believe I need that I don't really need. Like I'm in this meeting, this person is misunderstanding me, for example. Um, I actually don't need to be understood. I, I'm actually okay because my identity is in Christ. I can actually be fully misunderstood and still be at peace. Or a friend of mine, for example, who is a perfectionist, he would say, I believe that I need to do it perfectly the first time every time. Mm. And it takes quite a bit of work to get it that concrete. But if you can say it out loud, you actually gain power over it. 
it goes from being something rattling around in your brain to um, something external from you. And this is what I believe the Bible invites us to when we're invited to repent and confess. That's why I think it's important to say it out loud to someone else. I think this is how you repent from a lie that you're believing. And then you can displace that lie with the good news of Jesus. And then uh, just a third practice that I practice on a regular basis is I, I try to be hyper aware of when I've forgotten that God is with me. Hmm. Uh, and just, I'll actually just pause. Um, you know how the flight attendant says, um, you know, oxygen masks will drop and first put the mask on your own face before helping others. Right. I think leaders often are terrible at putting the mask on our own face. We, we believe the lie that we have to empty ourselves for other people mm. and, and we're not as good at filling ourselves up in order to care for other people. Uh, so I, I, I try to become hyper aware and I'd encourage our listeners to be hyper aware. When you're anxious, you forget God's with you. You can simply pause and remember God is, God is in this with me. But more powerfully, what has been most freeing for me is to not remember that God's with me, but to remember that God is actually ahead of me. And, and whatever situation I'm about to walk into that I'm anxious about, whether it's getting up to preach or a board meeting or, you know, any, whatever it is, that that, that environment I'm walking into, God's already there. And God's already at work. And I don't have to do anything. All I have to do is notice what God's doing and be part of that. And that's, for me, when I really became an effective chaplain, was when I was able to walk into a room where someone is dying and someone is screaming at the top of their lungs or someone is yelling at me as the chaplain, how could God allow this to happen? This kind of stuff. Mm. Just to remember God's already here. I, I don't have to control this situation. All I have to do is be fully present to these people and fully present to God. Uh, and that's very, I find that to be very freeing. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. And I love how you, how you kind of walked us through what that looks like for us um, as leaders, as ministry leaders, and how we can um, begin to identify that anxiety in our lives. And, and like you said, it's one of those things where you need to kind of name it in order to be able to address it. Right. Um, otherwise, right. we just keep operating in kind of our default system. So I think that's that's super powerful, Steve. I'd I'd like to kind of take this in a little bit of a different direction because we've been focusing a lot, which I think is very very important on um, kind of our own anxiety as a leader, as a ministry leader. But as as pastors, we're often dealing with others' anxiety, and so I was wondering, could you talk to us a little bit about? How can we as pastors and ministry leaders help those around us who are wrestling with anxiety? Are, are, are there some key things that um, you have done in the course of your ministry that helps others kind of identify anxiety in their lives? Yeah, and obviously that's a big question, but there are two fundamental practices that I believe mm-hmm. are a game changer for leaders. And the first one is, the, the best gift that, that a leader can offer another person or a church or a group is their own non-anxious presence. Mm. And uh, I, I, non-anxious presence is a technical term coined in family systems theory. I personally believe it's misnamed because it sounds like you're not anxious. But actually what a non-anxious presence is, is a person who is managing their own anxiety so that they're not being reactive. Because in any group of people, 
anxiety is always contagious. We catch each other's anxiety the way you catch a cold. Mm. And in fact, um, most of our le- most of our listeners have probably experienced this. In any meeting, the most anxious person always has the most power. All the attention goes to the most anxious person. And by most anxious, I don't mean that they're the most worried. Sometimes they're the most angry. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes right. they're the one acting out. And so what a leader uh, can learn to do is to to learn to manage their own reactivity so that they can be a calm presence in the midst of an anxious person. And that de-escalates. Uh, so that's obviously a, a long-term practice. It's known in system theory as differentiation. And it, it is a posture. But far and away, if if you are with an anxious person or an anxious group, if you're leading change, you know, mm-hmm. and people are sabotaging, the best that you can do is be a calm presence to de-escalate their anxiety. Uh, the second thing, and this is also a learned experience, is a leader can learn over time to pay attention to process as much as they're paying attention to content. So like at the next staff meeting you run or you're in, um, you know, keep paying attention to content, what people are saying to each other, but, but grow your awareness of process, the way people are relating to each other. And, and what you'll find is that every group of people end up in recurring predictable patterns. So let's say you have a staff meeting with six people in it. Mm-hmm. It's always the same person who speaks up first. It's, it's always the same person who never speaks up unless they're called upon. Um, it's always the same people who don't say much in the meeting, but they have their own private meeting after the meeting. Mm. And as a leader, if you want to bring health to your team and systemic change, learning to notice recurring relational patterns in you and your team is a game changer. And I got to say a really important word, Jason, if you're going to do this work, it's not that you are like the Yoda above the minions, you know, you're the Jedi master, you are part of the problem. And this is why I love family systems theory in group leadership, because you can change patterns by confessing your own complicity in them. You know, what, what you're doing to make relational patterns worse. It's not about you pointing out everyone else. It's really about you becoming the healthiest person you can. Hmm. Steve, let's, let's dive into that a little bit. Like, let's go back to, um, you know, staff meeting, in, in recognizing that process or those patterns, how do you practically um, address, as you said, you know, your your own kind of issue in the midst of that? Like, if you're in a staff meeting with your team, um, what what actually would you would you do? Yeah, um, it's always tricky in an interview format like this because what we're talking about are power tools. So, mm-hmm. in the right hands, they're really game changing, and in the wrong hands, they can do so much damage. <laughs> Um, but the, the best thing to do is to name the dynamic with somebody. Um, so once you've noticed the pattern and then once you've really gotten clear on your own complicity in it, then you can have a a difficult conversation in a non-threatening and non-heated way. And so that first step, that differentiation step, that ability to be a calm presence, sometimes that takes quite a bit of time. You might wait days or even weeks to have a conversation with somebody so you can manage your own reactivity. Like, like if someone's made you really mad, mm-hmm. uh, that's not the time to talk about the dynamic. But if you can manage your frustration and de-escalate it, you can then just have a very kind conversation with the person. And it, it'd be something like, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example. Maybe 
maybe you have a uh, an employee who is just underperforming and you're frustrated and you keep um, making up for their deficiencies mm. or, or maybe you keep having meetings trying to give them insight and they're not catching it. Um, it, it would then go something like this. You'd meet with them once you've become a calm presence and you'd say, hey, uh, I've noticed that you and I are in this recurring pattern and um, I want to name the pattern and then I want to name what I'm doing that I think is making the pattern worse. And then I want to hear from you what you think I'm doing that's making it worse. And then I'm going to, and I'm not saying you'd lay all this out, but this would be the moves you'd make with them. Right. So you'd say, hey, I, I've noticed that um, I don't think you're doing your job to the level that I think you could be doing it at. And I've noticed that I get frustrated. And so I'm sorry that if you've felt my frustration, I'm sorry that that's come across that way. But I, I'm also noticing that my solution to get more work out of you is to have more meetings and give you more insight, and it's not working. Um, what do you see that I'm doing that's the problem? And then give them time. Mm. And then after that, you'd say, okay, here's what I see that you're doing that's the problem. Now, what do you see that you're doing that's the problem? Mm. And be because you're not the Yoda where you're coming in and saying you're the problem, right. because you're saying the problem is between us, that you have incredible power to change the dynamic. Um, of course, these are these can feel very threatening type conversations if if someone's not used to a work environment where you talk that frankly. But um, you know, I've been doing this for years, and I, in our church, I'm the lead pastor. I'm I'm sort of the top of the food chain, if you will. But almost all of my key leaders are very comfortable coming to me, telling me when I'm part of the problem. Because we've created a culture where we all know each other's shadow side. And, mm -hmm. you know, I have gifts that are a real benefit to our staff, but my gifts have a shadow side that can be a real detriment to our staff. Like one example would be I'm very entrepreneurial. I'm an external processor. And it's not always clear for my staff when I'm thinking out loud versus when I'm actually saying, let's go do this thing. Mm. And so they're very comfortable coming to me and saying, hey, you know how you often say things you don't really care about? but it sounds like you do care about it. Um, do we, do we still care about this thing you were saying? You know, that kind of thing. Right. Um, so over time you can actually create a culture where you're very comfortable talking process with each other, not what people say, but the way they show up. And so long as the leader is the first to confess their sins, it generally works with people who are motivated to grow and develop. Now with people who are not motivated, it doesn't work. But most leaders um, believe the lie that more insight from me will work with someone who's unmotivated to change. So this approach, it, it, it raises to the surface people who don't want to grow and develop versus people who do. Wow, that's that's uh, so helpful. I'm just sitting here taking it all in at this point. I'm sure those who are listening are doing the same thing and thinking through our own relationships and um, – and how how we can address some things a bit differently. That's uh, that's golden. Thank you so much, Steve. We're get, we're kind of uh, wrapping up our conversation here. Um, if if you could share maybe one word of advice or encouragement, maybe something we haven't touched on, or or maybe emphasizing something that we have with um, the the ministry colleagues that are listening in right now. Um, what what would you share with them? Yeah, I, you know, I would say. That like I'm I'm a podcaster myself, Jason. I I also host a podcast. I love um, 
the modern technology ways that we can access information. I, I think it's such a gift. And having said that, I would say to our listeners, there is no 30 minute solution right. that, um, that the kinds of stuff we're talking about right now is a way of life. It's, it's more a set of glasses through which you see the world than it is a quick tool to implement. But I, I would simply say that emotional health and spiritual health takes a lot of time. Um, I, I personally have found that ministry is hazardous to emotional and spiritual health. So I think the average pastor needs to put more time into it than people who aren't in ministry. And I personally think it's because of this employee child mix up that we get into. So I would say that like the 30 minutes we just spent together, um, it's kind of like when you finally get to the gym and there's a personal trainer who's trying to tell you, you can do this. Um, in order to really put this way of life into practice, it's going to take a lot of trips to the gym for <laughs> sure. Lots of practice. No, that's, that's great wisdom. Steve, uh, absolutely love your book, Managing Leadership Anxiety. And, uh, I really encourage our listeners, um, to, if, if you want to, you know, take more trips to the gym. Uh, this is a great way to do it. Pick up the book and start digging in because you go through very practical ways of kind of dealing and managing and identifying, you know, the anxiety in our own lives. And then how, especially, uh, you know, you spend a lot of time talking about this relational anxiety, which we were able to touch on a bit. Um, so I really encourage people to to grab a copy of Managing Leadership Anxiety and are there other ways if people want to uh, maybe connect with you or or dig in a little more? Are there, are there other ways that they can do that, Steve? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the front door to everything I do is my website at stevecusswords.com. Um, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Twitter is at, at Steve Cusswords, and Twitter is where I generally do most of my managing anxiety work. Um, I'm, I'm hosting a conference in March in Denver, Colorado, and it, it's a two-day workshop where you'll get in a round table and particularly if you bring your team and I'll actually facilitate your team's experience or your experience over the course of two days. So it, it won't, because I, I don't believe actually reading a book um, brings change. I think you have to externalize like we were talking about mm -hmm. earlier. So in March, um, and there's information on, on the website, I, honestly, for people who want to dive deep into what I do, that, that two day experience is going to be the best opportunity um, and I'll also say there's lots of people who do the kind of work I do. You know, Peter Scazzaro is quite famous for it and Jim Harrington and Tricia Taylor. Mm -hmm. um, so what I do has some unique aspects, but, but this whole world of emotional health and family systems theory, boy, I would just encourage people to find a resource that works for them and really start putting it into practice. Excellent, Steve. And we will have links to, uh, to your website, uh, to the podcast, and, and everyone can get uh, more information uh, that way. Steve, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you with us on the podcast. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, how God has been speaking into your life, and, and how that can impact ministry leaders and through us impact our churches and uh, the kingdom as a whole. So thank you for making time to be with us, brother. Great. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, I really appreciate it. God bless you, my friend. You too. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast, and if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. 
Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android, and so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.